I think a lot of people, especially when they're new to investing or, or starting a business, is they struggle with the concept, as I did just a few years ago, and that is wealth does not always come in the form of money. It also comes in the form of time. It comes in the form of people. It comes in the form of knowledge. And it comes in the form of real estate. All I've really done is I've just changed my cash when I buy real estate into a property. It's still cash. You're listening to the Kniep and It Real Jodcast. This is your host, Seth Kniep. Hey everybody, this is Seth Kniep, Kniep and It Real. Welcome back to another episode of the Jodcast. And today, I'm very excited to talk to our guest, Whitney Sewell. Whitney is a real estate expert. He closed over a hundred million in the last 12 months doing real estate. He did a lot, and this was during the pandemic. So I'm really excited to talk about this. I know a lot of you guys have asked Seth, how do I take my Amazon profits if I want to invest them into real estate so I can build long-term wealth? This is the Jodcast episode for you to listen to. Uh, Whitney, thank you so much for being here today. My pleasure, Seth. Honored to be on your show. Can you talk first just a little bit about, you know, what drives you to do what you do? I love the backstory. Uh, you talk about, you know, the 50% profits going to orphans and the adoptive families. Can you just take a couple minutes to explain that first? I want everyone listening to understand what drives Whitney. Yeah, I, I believe you need a strong why to be successful in almost anything, like something other than just making or building wealth, right? Uh, and for my wife and I, when we first moved to Virginia, I'd become a federal agent and we were exposed to a pastor who talked about how they had adopted, how they were, uh, and, and really the expense of adoption, forty dollars to $60,000 to get a child home through adoption. It's so unfortunate when there's over 150 million orphans in the world. But on our way home, my wife and I, the question we kept asking ourselves is, why would we not adopt? Like, we couldn't think of a good reason why we would not bring a child home. So it seemed so simple. Uh, within a week, we turned in our application to adopt from Ethiopia. Uh, two years to the month, our first son, Samuel, came home from Ethiopia. It was, it was such a roller coaster ride, however, very worthwhile. Uh, eight or nine months later, our second son, Elijah, came home through adoption, through a domestic adoption process. And then our, our daughter now is almost 20 months old, who also came to our family through adoption. But the struggles of the, the financial burden, especially the first couple many years ago, uh, I mean, it was just such a burden, you know, the, the trying to do fundraising and figuring out where's the next 12,000 or 20,000 or, you know, going to come from uh, to make yeah. that happen. And so we found that many families, they hear that while they would love to be parents that, and they would love to adopt a child, it's more than they make in a year. And so we started a foundation where we can help these families really to commit, right? You know, we're going to provide a matching grant, maybe help them with ideas of fundraising to say, you know what, if you'll commit to bringing your child home to adoption, we want to help you financially to get across that burden. Uh, and so that's, you know, that's, that's where the LifeBridge Foundation came from. We do that obviously through our uh, real estate business. That's really powerful. So would you say that is massive motivation for what you do today? Because I know you specialize in helping people invest their money in real estate, people who don't have the time to learn all the expertise, right? That's that's exactly right. So we have 
many, many hundreds or thousands of investors who partner with us, you know, in these large. So, so they build wealth passively and, and many of them love knowing that they get to partner with us uh, in this give back, right? It doesn't affect their returns at all, but they're still playing a portion, you know, a role uh, in making this happen and helping these families. So you guys, I want to now move a little bit to the topic today. So you guys invested a, or purchased a hundred million in real estate over the last 12 months. How did you get to that point? When someone hears that number, you know, people ask me, it's, it's so interesting because we manage over a hundred million in annual Amazon revenue per year. So sort of like, but we're doing a little bit of real estate. So I get it from an Amazon FBA perspective, but from a real estate perspective, how do you get to that point? Because it, it's, a, it's a huge number. It is a huge number, and it took it took many years of just extreme dedication. And and we we literally it's a long story, but we literally sold the farm to make it happen. Uh, I mean, we had a farm. It's a long story, but we had another business, and we decided, you know, it's now or never. And it's been a few years ago, uh, but we sold everything uh, to to completely commit to the commercial real estate business and really. You know, working two full-time jobs for over two years, missing most things with family, most meals with the family, having to get good at saying no uh, to many good things, yeah. uh, but just, you know, weren't things that I could focus on for a long time, right? I had to get really good at time blocking and scheduling and being very purposeful uh, with my time. It, it meant, you know, scheduling 12 podcast interviews a day, maybe even 15 some days back to back to back, <laughs> uh, you know, amongst investor calls and being interviewed on other people's shows. And, and but it took that that level of commitment. Yeah. So let's say I'm a brand new Amazon. I'm sorry, Amazon. <laughs> I'm a brand new real estate investor. I want to invest in real estate. What do I do first, Whitney? You know, if it's, I think determining how active you want to be is, is a big thing. You know, determining, well, you know, can I manage a few single family homes? Is that really something you're looking to do? Uh, and I think, you know, for your listeners, if they have a successful Amazon business or they're a successful entrepreneur, they have a, another way that they're earning income and they're really good at that, then I would say focus on that and, and learn how to be a good passive investor. Uh, yeah. And then the, the first few things you're going to do is learn how to right. uh, figure out, is this operator somebody I trust? Is this somebody that I really want to partner with? And there's many things we can get into. So I, I've had a dozen, not a dozen, I've had six or eight investor calls this morning already. And all Often I get that question, well, what should I be asking you, Whitney, you know, as I learn this business? And there's so many things around the market, the deal, the business plan, all those things that we could get into. There's hundreds of questions we could say, but you know what? The the top thing you need to know is is do you trust this operator? What's their character? How did they become who they are? Uh, You know, how do you feel about this person? You know, when things go bad. How are they going to handle that? And that's what I want to know first. You know, of course, yeah. I'm going to, I want to know about their deal. I want to know about the market they're in, all those things. But is this somebody I trust? Um, is this somebody that's going to do right by me as the investor? And that's what I want to find out. I mean, I invest with other operators as well. Many other operators invest with me. Uh, and so those are the things that I want to know. Okay. So how, what questions do I ask or what do I do to find out if I can trust this operator so I know whether or not I can invest with them? Find out about how they became who they are. Obviously, you're going to ask about track record. And, uh, you know, one thing you're, you're going to hear about me, you know, is I'm going to tell you about my 
experience. I'm going to tell you about my law enforcement, you know, becoming a police officer or receiving soldier of the year, the year I was in Iraq and, and uh, being one of five hired out of 1200 applicants for Kentucky state police and then becoming a federal agent and, you know, working two full-time jobs to make this happen. And, you know, the hundred million last year. So, you know, I'm hoping that all those things share with you just the credibility, right? You know, all those things were very difficult uh, to do, you know, so I'm hoping that that expresses to you before we even meet uh, a lot about my character. Uh, but but if you don't know that about you know an operator, I'm going to want to know those things. You know, how did you be- get to where you're at? You know, who was your coaches? Who were your mentors? Uh, you know, what are some difficult things you've had to accomplish? What are some properties that maybe didn't didn't go the way they were planned? You know, how did you handle that with investors? Show me the way you communicate with investors. Show me uh, communication with investors when things didn't go so well. Uh, right? How did you handle this pandemic over the last year? What's the worst thing that happened? Uh, you know, I want to know some of those things. Uh, you know, we'll get into more details about location and deal and business plan. Uh, but but those are some things I want to know right off the bat to ensure this is someone that maybe aligns with my goals, uh, my values, uh, and, and things like that. I find it interesting, Whitney, that you focused a lot in your response to my question on how they handle problems. And that makes sense because how people handle problems tells you a lot about that person's character. Until someone's under pressure, you don't see the other side of them. You know, when someone, the pressure's on and they're at risk of losing something, all of a sudden you start to see another stuff. Sometimes good and sometimes not so good. So I think that's really good. Um, So let me ask you this. So if I find an operator and I'm interested in investing with them for real estate, if their story just sounds so glorious and so wonderful and so great and everything's success, 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 then I probably haven't done enough research. I need to look a little closer. It might be just too good to be true. Is that fair to say? That's potential. And I know that's what we tend to believe often. Maybe that is. I, you know, I would say, and I'll use myself as an example here because I yeah. get the question so many times a week uh, from new potential investors, you know, like, tell me about a deal that's, that's gone south, right? Yes. Uh, and I say my first deal uh, is the worst one that, that we've done. And that was in 2009. <laughs> uh, you know, we, did, we, we bought two triplexes and I just made a lot of mistakes, elementary mistakes, uh, but we learned so much. Uh, you know, we learned it the hard way, uh, but it was like an, a university. And, uh, but, but, you know, the syndication deals that we've done have gone very well. Uh, you know, one of the biggest issues we've had, we have one property that struggled with some vacancy through COVID, but now it's back up. It took about two months and now it's back up to, yeah. you know, like 96 or 8%, you know, so uh, it was a very small problem, but still that was kind of the worst uh, as far as these large deals that we've done. Um, yeah. And so, you know, I, I would just dig a little bit there. You know, I would ask, you know, what is the worst thing that's happened? You know, show me how you projected that to investors. Have you missed any distributions? Why, you know, have you had any capital calls? Uh, things like that. I ask about reserve budgets. Ask how they're prepared for a downturn. I ask every every time I do a show with an operator, you know, an interview like this, I ask them how they prepare for a downturn. Uh, you know, I want to know that they have enough in reserves, you know, for many months. Uh, you yeah. know, I mean, it's not uncommon for us to have six to, I mean, six to nine months of expenses in a reserve budget the day we close. Uh, and it's often on an interview like this, I'll ask somebody and they'll have one to two months and not that scary to me. That is scary because uh, you know, things go so fast. If something turns down, boom, that those reserves could go out like quickly. Yeah. A $30 million project and, and yeah. you can go through $100,000 in a, in a hurry, you know, yeah. on a project that size. Uh, and so you need to have some capital on hand. Uh, we, pro- we closed on a project a week before the country shut down in March and we had a million and a half dollars in a reserve budget. Uh, and so before we closed though, 
you know, there were some people who were skeptical about that reserve budget. They say, Whitney, that that really hurts the returns of investors. You don't need a reserve budget that large. And it does hurt their returns slightly. It's it's ever so slightly. Um, However, guess what? A week later, the country shuts down and everybody's. (laughs) (laughs) We haven't had to use it, but still, you know, they were so thankful. Yeah, you were thinking long term. It's funny you say that because just last night, Josiah, my son, he's also my business partner and I, we were talking about where is our next real estate investment going to be. And we were looking at premium properties with a high ROI on short-term rentals versus buying not so premium, but we can get more if we just do a 20% down payment on all of them until we reach our max of residential because some of our investments are either paid off completely or they're commercial. So we haven't maxed out that eight to 10 you get with the Fannie Mae backing qualified mortgage. I'm going to mess it up a little bit as I say it, but you know what I'm talking about before you have to go really rogue and find a credit union or some kind of special deal because it's no longer backed by the government. And we're sitting there thinking, okay, how important is a positive cash flow to us right now after debt services are paid? And they were thinking, okay, we could get more, but our cash flow would be lower. And do you know what helped us make a decision? was we said, well, where do we want to be three and five years from now? And as soon as we asked that question, boom, it became clear. Now we know what we want to do because this is going to help us three years from now, five years from now, more than just right now. And it actually brings me to two questions, Whitney. Number one, so let's say I have $50,000 for my Amazon sales. And I'm talking about profit. I do not want to invest this into another product. I have three products going. And those are self-sustaining. So the revenue and the profit margins are high enough where I can keep restocking inventory and that's running well. Here I have 50,000 and I really do want to diversify my portfolio. I want to lower my risk. What do, assuming I've vetted you, I trust you, you've shared your story with me and vice versa. We have similar thinking. What do you recommend I do with this 50,000? And, and, and I'm open. Like you might say, hey, short-term rentals. You might say long-term. You might say buy and hold, buy and flip. I understand there's a thousand ways you could go. But if, if my goal, let me, this might help answer, you answer the question. My goal is I don't want to touch the money. I want it to grow as much as possible over the next half of a decade. What would you recommend in that scenario? Assuming that your focus is Amazon, like that's your business. That's what yes. you're in day to day. I'm going to keep you doing know, that. I, Yep. That's right. I I would keep doing that, growing that the best you can, invest passively in a syndication. Uh, You know, that would be, I would not try to buy my own rentals. I would not try to extend the, you know, the brain power or the brain damage, I should say, (laughs) your own rentals and managing your own rentals. I mean, I did that, you know, in the beginning and and learned the hard way, man, this is going to be really hard to scale, right? This is going to be, it's going to take me so long to replace my income, to create that passive income, you know, right. uh, and because what I found also is I know lots of guys who uh, and gals who are successful at single family rentals or small multis, they, you know, they may have hundreds, right, you know, in our local community that I know, but they're really good at it, but very few people can get to that scale and, and do it in a manner where, uh, you know, if they include their time, or they're, I mean, they're, they're just not even coming close to what they could have earned if they'd invested all that capital in a passive syndication. I mean, it's just not even close, you know? Yeah. So, uh, so if you only have 50,000 uh, often in a syndication, the 50, there's a $50,000 minimum. Okay. Yeah. That's, that's why I said that. <laughs> 25. Uh, and so, you know, if it's 25, if you can get in for 25, then I would say, you know what, pick two different, especially two different operators that you really like in two different markets. 
right? right? You know, so find two different deals, two different operators, two different markets. That's going to help you diversify that fifty thousand. But if it's if it's you know this one operator that you really trust, you like this deal, it provides the returns you're looking for, uh, then I would say you know put that fifty thousand in in one deal passively. Uh, you know, get that check every month. You know, uh, hopefully in say you know two to three years inside that deal, they'll do a refinance, and you'll even get say twenty to thirty thousand of that capital back and have it you know, distribute again while still earning on the first $50,000 investment. That's the amazing thing about syndication. Uh, so find the operator, uh, invest passively with this operator who's experienced and that you trust while growing your Amazon business. And you know you got that next 50,000, hey, you can go deploy it again. You get that 30,000 back from a refinance. You, know, you just deploy it again. Um, before you know it, you've got numerous streams of income coming from numerous properties you know, in different markets and different operators. And so you've become very diversity. Help me understand syndication. Help me. What exactly am I doing? If I invest 50,000 into syndication, does it mean other people are also investing in the same property or is it a combination of properties? We'll have our own share. And then second follow-up question to that, how am I making my money back? What exactly is happening? Is it being leased out and you have another team managing that? Or is it just more the growth of the equity? Are we refinancing? Could you break it down for us? Yes. Great question. And so we should back up and say, okay, syndication is pretty simple. It's ultimately pulling you know, lots of people together to be able to purchase a property or do an investment that you would typically never be able to do on your own, right? Okay. Yeah, most people, even if you had $10 million to invest, you're not going to want to take that and go put it in one, pro- in one project. Right. <laughs> right. You know, so, yeah. so this allows, you know, hundreds of investors to come together to purchase that $30 million project, $50 million project, uh, you know, and, and them, so they're buying shares of, a, of an entity that own this piece of real estate. Right. So okay. there, we like, we had 180 investors in the last project in that one deal. Right. And so many of them put in 50,000, many put in a hundred, some at 250, some three, some 500,000, you know, they're, they're all over the place. Uh, um, but they're they're purchasing shares of the entity, so they own real estate. You know, they own part of this deal. When you say deal, yes. you're talking about one property or multiple properties. Right. So we'll get to that. So like uh, in it could be both ways, right? So you need to know, you know, is this deal specific? And and all of our projects up to this point have been. So when you are investing in a deal, you know the exact deal, you know the exact market location, you know the business plan for that project. We're sharing that with you, team is, you know, all those things. You see what the current rents are, you see what we're planning to take them to and how we're planning to get there. Uh, And so that's very deal specific. But you may decide to invest in a fund, right? And that's one way to diversify, but you probably, you're not going to expect as high returns. Okay. It's going to be maybe slightly less risk because then we can say, okay, you're going to invest in this fund. These are the projections that we're projecting, you know, to return to our investors. However, it's going to be split up over a, these types of properties. You know, this is our plan over the next uh, two years, we plan to purchase these kinds of properties. Uh, and this is what we're going to return to you. This is how it's going to work. So in that ma- method, you don't know the specific deal. You're trusting that operator completely, right? It's, it's, it's kind of, you're going in kind of blindly, completely on trust with this operator. Just to make sure I understand. So a fund is where we're investing into a pool and that pool could include more than one property, but a deal is one property. Did I get that right? That's right. Okay. That's correct. Makes sense so far. All right. That's correct. Yeah. So, 
So just know, you need to know that when you see an offering come out from an operator, you know, you see if it's a fund and they'll tell you what kind of deals it is, uh, you know, and how they're going to pay out. And it could matter when you get into that fund, depending on how much, you know, they project for you to make and those things. Uh, but just know, just know that, you know, in a deal specific, you do know the deal, you know, the operator, you know, the business plan, you know, all those things. If it's a large fund, you are going to be more diversified, but obviously then you are just relying that much more on the operator and your level yeah. of trust, that you know, sense. with that operator. It's almost like working with Charles Schwab. I used to invest with them and I stopped when I realized so much bigger opportunities where you have this person, this contact, this manager, and they say, here, trust this program. It's diversified. Here's all these, you know, home equity funds or all these different options. And you really, if you don't know stocks, you don't know what you're doing other than what they tell you. So you're depending on them. And then you can go in and watch and see the rise and fall. You know, and if you look at it every day, your emotions go up and down with it. <laughs> so right. this is making sense. So my second question is, let's just assume it's a deal. Okay. So I put my $50,000 in, you have, you know, let's say a hundred other people putting it in. Now, how am I making money? What's happening? Like the equity, the rental, the lease. Could you break that down for us? Right. Yeah, great question. So what, what happens, and you want to notice ahead of time, and it will be very different depending on the type of project that we're purchasing. So a lot of our projects are, say, C plus, B minus properties. Maybe they haven't been remodeled in 20 years, you know, or 10 years, or even longer uh, sometimes. Um, or maybe they just have a very poor management. You know, there's some type of problem that they have. You know, we've had properties where we've watched them over many months, and we can see like a decline in occupancy. Like we know there's a problem there. We know something is happening. Uh, you know, and it's a market we're very familiar with. And we're like, we can fix that. You know, we, we know we can fix it. We've done it. Uh, and so, you know, we go after that property uh, and, and just putting in good management could just start to drastically increase the income from that property. Right. Uh, you know, or, but a mo majority of the time we're going to go in knowing we're in a property like that, we're going to go in putting, you know, seven to $10,000 per unit into that property to remodel, bring them up to market. Uh, and so we can start to increase, increase the rents. And so, you know, if we can increase the income, then we increase the value of the property, right? And, and so investors are paid, you know, we, we pay out typically what's called a preferred return. Uh, and that preferred return, just know that that means you're paid before before the active or uh, operators or general partnership like myself are paid. And that's right. the first portion of any cash flow. So a lot of people think that preferred return that is guaranteed. It, 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 there's nothing guaranteed in investing, uh, right? <laughs> and so if you hear that, it, you know, obviously, you know, we know to run, but, yeah. but know that that's the first portion of any cash flow. So if there's no cash flow, there's no preferred return. Um, right. But what happens is as that property improves, uh, you know, we're buying properties that are cash flowing and stabilized typically from day one. And so we, we're paying investors within the first 30 days of closing. Uh, and then knowing that over time that the income is improving, the income is increasing, uh, and we're able to pay out even more and more, you know, to investors. Most of that's projected very conservatively, you know, in our underwriting uh, over that four to, or say three to five to seven year hold over that, over the life of that deal. So, so this is, to be clear, this is multifamily housing, minimum of five units. So it is commercial. Is that correct? That's correct. Uh, preferably, we're buying 150 units or more at a time. So this is like a, an apartment building. Yes, that's right. Okay. There may be 30 to 40 to buildings on one property. Okay. If I invest my 50000 does it mean I potentially own part of one of the units or is it all combined? We just take the total of 100 people, I'll invest you know, 1,000, for example. Each person owns 1%. Is that accurate? 
That's accurate. Uh, yeah, it wouldn't be like, well, you own unit 103. You know, it would be, you know, you own a share, you know, of this entire property. You know, you okay. own a, a percentage, uh, you know, of that of that property. Okay. Now, when you guys buy these multifamily housing units, is that the correct term? Multifamily housing unit? What do you, what's your Sure. Name? Multifamily, yeah, multifamily okay. property. Multifamily property. Are you guys ever buying it at the market value or are you always looking for a really incentivized seller who wants to get out, but they're willing to take a cut on the sale? In other words, they're going to sell it under market value because they want to get out. They just need the cash. Like, how do you guys think through that strategy? You know, most, most right now, the seller's market, right? Most are not going to take a cut, you know, in, in any way, unless there's some kind of big issue. But we, you know, we're looking for that issue. We're looking for that problem that we can fix. And that's where we can come in and accelerate the, the value very quickly, you know, by doing the remodel, by doing, uh, you know, raising the rents or putting in better management. I mean, we, we secret shop properties all the time and we've had people go up to uh, a door, you know, of a leasing office five minutes before they open and somebody open it and say, we're not open yet and slam the door, <laughs> you know I mean? Just like, <laughs> you know, like that's like, you know, this is not rocket science, science right. you know, for the most part, we can fix yeah. those things, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so it's problems like that, that where we can create a lot of value very fast uh, that we're looking for. Uh, and so this person has this value in mind, uh, but obviously we're going to verify the income right now and ensure that, you know, that is the current value uh, and ensure that there is a method for us to increase rents or us to improve the management or for us to create more value very quickly. This is really interesting. And I love how you said you're looking for problems so you can add value. I mean, that is the heart of an entrepreneur is you're looking for problems that you can solve. If everything's perfect, we're not needed. But if there's a problem, we can bring value. Now we have something to exchange. People are willing to part with money because we are providing a value to them, just like selling on Amazon. This is why I always tell people, you got to go look at the critical reviews because those will tell you the problems. And from there, you can build out a product. If you just you know, show up with a product that's similar to someone else's and think it's going to sell, it's not. So I love how these principles cross over. So, okay, so I got my 50,000. I invest in you guys. You guys are purchasing a multifamily housing apartment or, or building a property. Now, here's my next question. When you guys purchase it, or I should say me and everyone, are we purchasing it with cash or am I also financing part of that? Like, is this an actual cash purchase so there are no debt services to be worried about after the deal is closed? Great question. So you need to know as an investor, if you are an equity investor or if you're a debt investor, it's two totally okay. different things, right? And, and so in our deals, you're equity investors. So you own you know, equity in that deal. We will also have a loan you know, for that project. You know, so if we're closing, we'll use very round numbers. Uh, but if we're buying a $30 million project, let's say we need to raise uh, you know, eight to ten million dollars. So we'll do that portion from investors, but then we'll have another twenty, you know, twenty-one million dollar loan, you know, agency debt or local credit union, one or the other, uh, that's covering the debt piece of, of that deal. Okay. So does that debt piece impact my returns? Because even though I I gave cash one hundred percent, you're still having to take on debt. So shouldn't that somehow benefit or counteract what I'm doing? If you have to take on debt, then that increases your liability. My liability is low if I invest 50000 of equity. So how does that work? Does that impact my return if you're taking on debt? In other words, does it lower my return in any way? Because you, you, you basically took on a liability to give me an opportunity. Yes. Uh, I mean, I would say uh, we are taking on a liability, but uh, we are providing a higher return uh, as opposed to if we say financed 
uh, raised, let's say we raised the whole $30 million, uh, you right. know, uh, from investors, right? And we just, you know, then we went and purchased that paying all cash. We couldn't pay you near the return that we can uh, if we, you know, got that level of debt uh, because that money is so much cheaper, right? Yeah. I mean, if we're getting that at, you know, 3%, uh, you know, that allows us to pay so much more to our investors uh, than if we raised the entire $3 million completely from investors. We wouldn't be able to pay out near as much to investors. So, uh, so it's another way of leveraging other people's money, right? Uh, you know, there are concerns there if we have too high of a, a loan ratio, right? You know, if we're at like uh, 80% uh, loan to value, then obviously right. I'm going to be more concerned depending on the type of, of, of property or whatnot. Uh, but, and that would be something that I would watch. Uh, but we're going to have to use debt for m- most cases like that, you know, we're yeah. talking about a property that size uh, yeah. because otherwise we wouldn't be able to hardly pay out, you know, anything to, you know, to investors or, or to the level that they would even want to invest if we raise the entire amount. Yeah. You don't have to put so much capital down because you, you, the debt allows you to have more free capital to invest. So that makes sense to me. So whether or not you take on debt to help close on the deal, I'm still going to get a return. I mean, you can't guarantee this, I know, but the promise is if it does have good returns, I'm still going to get the same percentage of return based on the equity that I purchased in this deal. Correct? That's correct. Okay. And that's based on the rents, right? So like if, if, if I own, just to keep it super simple, just to say it's, you know, a $100 property and I own 10% of it, so I own a dollar of it, then I should be getting 10% of the returns on that property based on the rents. Yeah, let me walk through a little bit about how we pay out, uh, you know, distributions. Uh, And so typically, you know, we're going to say in the beginning, okay, we do what's called a dual class structure. And and just to briefly explain what that means, it gives investors options. And so you could invest and purchase class A shares and receive, say, a 10% preferred return for the life of the deal. But there's no upside. This is what you get. So you're getting, you know, uh, so it gives investors options, right? For more cash flow or if you're investing for more long term growth. And right. so you can invest in or purchase class B shares and receive an 8% preferred return, but then also receive a 70% of the upside, uh, you know, like when we sell or we do a refinance or something like that. So that's the investor that's looking for more long term growth, right? And depending right. on where you're at in your investing journey or your, your goals, uh, you know, some, some will, you know, do both, uh, both or one. Of the other. Um, and so there's different ways that that happens. And so if let's say you invested in uh, class B shares, well, we're going to say, okay, you know, Seth, you're going to receive an 8% preferred return. Uh, and that's going to be annualized. And we're going to send out monthly distributions. So every month you're going to get a check. Uh, you know, and you're going to get those every month, the 8% preferred return annualized over that year. But let's say at the end of that year, uh, you know, we've had a lot more cash flow than expected. Uh, you know, and we have you know, $300,000 that, you know what, you know, this is over and above what we expected this year. We're going to send that out to investors. And so then those class B investors, uh, you know, that's going to be above the preferred return. Hmm. And so then that's going to be split 70, 30 amongst, you know, 70% of that's going to be split per share, you know, out to those class B investors, while the 30% is going to go to the general partnership team. Uh, you know, does that, does that help? Uh, you know, so, so then, you know, we may look at that annually, depending on that cash flow and, and distribute, you know, a lot more. If we do a refinance, let's say in year two or three, uh, we don't, we don't, we do not put those typically in our projections, but we do hope to do a refinance. But if you right. invest 50,000, you know, like we had mentioned earlier, and we said, you know what, year three, we do a refinance, we hand you back your 30,000, you know, 30,000 of that original investment. The cool part is that you don't pay taxes on that because we're returning capital. But, yeah. but what you want to ask is when that happens, 
am I still invested at 50,000 or now I'm, am I only invested at 20,000? Right. You know, so, so because it, it's handled very differently between different operators and different deals. So you want to know what am I being paid on then? What's my level of investment then? And, and us, uh, we will, we'll leave you invested at 50. So if we said, okay, Seth, you know, here's 30,000 back, but guess what? Next month distribution is still based on a $50,000 investment. Right? And that's an amazing part of, of this kind of, of, of deal, you know, or real estate. Gotcha. So that 8% that you talked about in class B and the 10% that you talked about in class A, that 8 or 10% is 8 or 10% of what? Of the total returns combined for everyone. So if I'm 10%, then I'm getting 10% of, and the remaining 90% is going out to the other investors as well as the partners. Is that correct? Well, it's an 8% preferred return on your investment. You know, so, uh, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a return on your investment. That's what we project that we can provide, you know, at that time. Uh, and so okay. that's just a projection. And that's why, you know, we don't, uh, you know, it's hard to say a year or five years from exactly what the pennies are going to be, uh, right? And so that's why we say we can provide, or we're very comfortable saying we're going to provide 8% preferred return, uh, but we're going to reassess that, you know, over months and over years, you know, as, as we have more income, we're going to reassess that and, and you know, pay out more than that typically. Gotcha. So, so if, if the returns are lower than 8%, I still get the 8% or they have to, you're, that's a projection that we hope to get and should likely get. Great question. You want to ask what happens if I don't receive that that much return, or if an investor has to skip? You know, let's say you know a lot of investors over this pandemic uh, stopped stop distributions, right? Uh, and so they said, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. We're going to stop distributions for a few months. Uh, thank the Lord, we did not do that. I have to do that, um, but some did, and you know, maybe that was the right decision for them. But you want to know ahead of time what happens to my investment or, you know, or those projected returns uh, when that happens. And, and they should accumulate, you, you know, they should accumulate, meaning when, when there's a refinance or they exit, meaning they sell the property, that should be the first thing that's paid back to you, you know, are those missing distributions. Uh, and, and so you want to know that that's how that's handled. Gotcha. Hey guys, for those of you listening right now, this is the Just One Dime Jodcast with Seth Kniep, Kniep and Real as your host. I'm going to take a moment to answer many questions you guys have asked. You said, Seth, just when I'm team, can you guys build an Amazon business for me if I don't want to take the time and the hassle of doing it myself? And the answer is, it depends. You have to fill out an application. If you go to jod.com slash DFY, JOD stands for just one dime. DFY stands for done for you. Fill out the application. Our team will look at that. And based on the application, you may be able to get an interview with our team. We interview you, we talk, and we explain the terms and conditions for what that means. Now, something that you need to know as we build these stores out is this is on a sliding scale. So we, we receive 15% of the revenue only if you get a minimum of 30% profit margin. And if the margin is down from there, our revenue is less. All the way down, if you are 10% profitable or less, we get nothing. In other words, it guarantees that you will make the same or more than we make if the store is profitable. Now, it's, I love this conversation, Whitney, because it ties in with what we're doing. So many people say this. They say, well, Seth, can you give me a guarantee? And here's my response. You could lose every single penny. This is an investment. You must divorce yourself from the money is an investment. If you're taking your life savings, money you need for medical bills, food off the table to pay your mortgage, to pay your rent, we are not interested. This is only if you have money over here and you are taking a chance. You are investing. You're taking a risk. 
Now, do we have the ability to grow that? We do, but we promise nothing except we will do everything we can to grow as much as possible. So, if you want us to build an Amazon business for you, go to jod.com/dfy. Fill out an application. You will either way. You will hear back from our team whether or not that follows up with an appointment for a video chat meeting with one of our team members. Everyone listening、um, today, I have Whitney Sewell on the Jodcast, and he is explaining real estate investment. And I hope that you guys are learning a lot. And even if you're just getting, you know, five or ten percent of it is making sense, don't worry. I, the way I learned Amazon FBA, most of it made no sense to me, but I had to move to action. And as I acted, I learned because there's no greater teacher than experience and failure and failing along the way and messing up as you go. So that brings me to my next question, Whitney. What is the greatest risk for a real estate investor? And my second question is, why real estate? What? Why is it such a time-proven investment for growing wealth? Yeah. So to answer your first question, the biggest risk is, and we've talked about it quite a bit, but it's always the operator. It's always the operator. Most of us have heard, and if you haven't, you know, a, a great operator can turn a bad deal into a good one,、uh, but、yeah. a bad operator can still turn a good into a bad one, right?、Uh, and so,、uh, you know, you need to know your operator. That that is your top risk, right there.、Uh, you know, is is who is this person? How are they going to handle this investment? Do they have experience? All those things, right?、Um, and then your your second question. Second question is why is real estate such a great opportunity? Why do people keep talking、yes. about it? You, Robert Kiyosaki, Tom Wheelwright, like it just seems so time proven. You know what is it about real estate that seems so special? You know, as far as what seems so special, that's maybe a, somewhat of a mystery. However, <laughs> I would say you know, in two thousand and nine, when I was I was a police officer looking for some way to supplement my income, right, and making thirty five thousand a year, working all the overtime I could possibly work. You know, I was like, okay, I've got to figure out something.、Um, and so, I, but I, what I discovered was that not only had one person or five people built wealth in real estate, like. Hundreds of thousands,、uh, you know, a million, you know, I mean, so many people, millions of wealth, real estate, and that gave me the confidence. Right, I'm like, wait a minute, you know, if that many people can do it, I can do it too.、Uh, and so, and that's happened numerous times over my real estate career.、Uh, you know, I'm like, okay, you know, if this many people can do this,、uh, but real estate, you know, it's it's one of those things that's、uh, not like our dollar,、uh, you know, where they're not making any more of it. Right, you know, so there's only so much,、uh, you know, land,、uh, you know, that's ever going to be there,、uh, right? right? And it's all about how creative we can be to、uh, to improve that investment, to build the right thing, or to own the right property. Obviously, you know, everybody has to have a place to live,、uh, but you know, having that place in the right place, you know, where people want to live,、uh, you know, is crucial.、Uh, but there's so many things around real estate that make it a one of a kind investment.、Uh, you know, we're also the tax benefits, right? Yeah, you know, so just great tax benefits around real estate that that there are not around other types of investing.、Uh, and one thing too, I would say, as opposed to investing in say a stock market or something like that, you know, the stock market goes down. I mean, it's it's like you just blew dust out of your hand, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's like it's gone. gone. It's just gone. Yeah. To- That's right,、uh, and and no matter you know if you bought Apple stock, you can go buy as many iPhones as you want, and it's not really going to affect your your stock value very much, right?、Uh, you no matter how much you encourage your friends to go buy iPhones or iDevices, it's just it's not going to affect your stock.、Um, however, with this piece of real estate, let's say the market goes down. Um, and, and let's say we do worst comes to worst, and we do have to say, okay, I'm sorry, Seth, we're going to go, you know, quite a few months here. Maybe we can't pay out distributions. Well, you know, guess what? We still own that piece of real estate. 
Mm-hmm. We're still managing that piece of real estate. Yeah. Uh, and, and so we still have it. It's still ours. And so then it's just a matter of management and waiting, yeah. right? Until the market comes back up. Uh, yeah. And so we still own it. You know, it, it, isn't, it didn't just vanish. Uh, yeah. And so that's just one of the amazing things about real estate. It's like, man, if, if you're prepared for a downturn, if you're prepared to weather that storm, uh, you know, the best that you can, most likely you're going to win. Yeah. I think a lot of people, especially when they're new to investing or or starting a business, is they struggle with the concept, as I did just a few years ago. And that is, wealth does not always come in the form of money. It also comes in the form of time. It comes in the form of people. It comes in the form of knowledge. And it comes in the form of real estate. All I've really done is I've just changed my cash when I buy real estate into a property. It's still cash. But it's not like someone's going to come up and burn the cash or take it away. And I know sometimes we like 2008, 2009, the value can go down, but it always seems to come back up again. I've been reading a book by James Rickards. Um, It's called The New Great Depression. And he goes really deep in on the virus and COVID-19 and his reasons for believing the lockdowns were ridiculous because history has proven in the Spanish flu demonstrates this, that lockdowns don't work unless you are 1000% isolated from all society. For example... And you'll see how this ties in real estate in a moment. If you were, you know, not allowed to buy paint in Michigan, which was kind of weird. You couldn't buy paint. It's kind of an odd one. You might drive to uh, Wisconsin or some other state to buy it. So you're still interacting with someone. So if you have the virus, it's still going to spread. So what the lockdown did, he says, is it actually just flattened the curve a bit. It spread it out. It didn't, everyone was still going to get it if they were going to get it. The, and again, history proves this. The only lockdowns that worked during the Spanish outbreak in the early 1900s was when you were assigned to like this military island away from all society. You had guards at the door. No human being could leave that island or go, go to it. And they didn't get the flu. But it's literally, impo- lockdowns don't actually keep people from getting it. They just slow it down. Now, one of the arguments in favor of this is, yeah, but look at the infrastructure of the hospitals. It, gave, it helped them because they can only take on so many patients at a time. That makes sense. But then someone else could argue, yes, but look at the suicides, look at the overdosing, look at the spousal abuse, family domestic violence, um, the crime rate, all the, I mean, one, uh, one expert in this field said he saw more suicides in two months than he had seen in the last several years during those lockdowns. So the point was, If you're going to get COVID-19, it's just going to happen. It just might have been delayed. But what was the cost and lies from other reasons as a result of the lockdown? Now, this isn't a show about politics. That's not my goal. But I do want to make a point. One thing he mentioned that I thought was so phenomenal is he said, when you look at real estate and the value it brings and you compare that to stocks, every 10 to 30 years, the stocks go down. Like there's this mentality. If I invest in stocks and I just hold 50 years, it's going to be more wealthy. I'll be more wealthy. But he said, that's a misnomer because every few years, the stocks are still going to go down and you can lose everything in 10 to 30 years. And then you have to build it back up again. But real estate doesn't do that. That's what I find so mind blowing. And even Robert Kiyosaki talks about, he built a lot of his wealth during 2008, 2009, when some people were literally jumping off of buildings in fear or giving up on life. He's like, wait, This is a problem. We talked about this earlier. This is an opportunity. I can bring a solution if I'm patient. No doubt. It's when other people are jumping is when you typically want to jump in, right? Yeah. Uh, Robert Kiyosaki's definitely promoted that in a big way. Uh, Yeah. Couldn't agree more about the lockdown stuff uh, for sure. Uh, But real estate is a way that, I mean, yeah, jumping in when everybody else is jumping out is when people have built massive wealth. 
Yeah. You know, I want to ask you just a couple more questions, Whitney. And again, thank you for being on the Jodcast and, and thank you everyone for listening. Uh, before we do that, though, where can people find you if they're interested in investing with your syndication program? And by the way, guys, I want to remind you and tell me this is right. It's around 60,000 to adopt a child. Is that right? It could be anywhere from 40 to 60. Yeah, there's a pretty big. Okay. So you're talking about almost a full salary, in some cases, a full salary just to adopt a precious human being. 50% of their profits go to helping the adopted or the orphan child and their adoptive family to make that process easier. So you're not just helping your future self and your family. You're actually helping people you may never meet but have infinite value, which I find phenomenally awesome. Where can people go if they want to invest in what you guys are doing, Whitney? They can go to lifebridgecapital.com. You can obviously email me, Whitney, at lifebridgecapital.com, or you can call or text me at 540-585-4338. I encourage anyone to reach out. Can you give those one more time so for people who are driving in their cars have a chance to get it? Yes, uh, lifebridgecapital.com. That's Whitney at LifeBridgeCapital.com for email or call or text me 540-585-4338. We'd love to speak with you. You are the first guest I've ever had who gave out his phone number. I love that. So you guys have it. You can literally text Whitney right now if you want to talk to him. Please do. (laughs) That's awesome. I hope hope your phone blows up after this (laughs) with text. so (laughs) So, okay. So I have one last question and I love this question. You have a growing family. You do how many podcasts a day, approximately? And now I, I'll usually schedule about eight, eight a day. When I eight started, we would do 12, 15. How many hours is that of your day for those eight? That would be, so like Tuesday of this week, we scheduled from eight to about 2.30 okay. nonstop. Okay. So like more than half of a regular work day, you have a growing family, you have two sons and a daughter and a wife, and you're closing deals. So here's the the biggest question, I think, because everyone, even if you're not even remotely interested in real estate, you can use this value you're about to get. How do you have enough time to do all this and stay sane and healthy from the inside out? That's that's an incredible question. And I would say when I first started, it was much more difficult because I was still working full time while we moved twice in the process, started our third adoption process while doing deals and working with investors, doing a daily podcast. It was quite insane. I had to be willing to miss a lot of meals with families and time with friends and all those things I had to get good at saying no to, right? So, so I could see this vision, right? Longer down the you know, further down the road that we were moving towards. Uh, and now it's getting so good at time blocking, scheduling, ensuring my, my team knows exactly what my time is used for and when. Uh, you know, my calendar, I'm sure just like yours, if I let it, I mean, it will just flood with appointments that are all scheduled for me the entire week. It's like, what? wait a minute, you know, where did, I, where did these come from? So, so it, I have to get very good at, at, at time blocking. And so even in the afternoons now, I mean, I time block and say, you know what, this is family time or this is what we're doing or, uh, you know what, this is, uh, you know, a child's birthday. I, I'm not taking any this day. Uh, you know, now I can do that. I couldn't do that for the first couple of years, but now I can. And I, I'm trying to maximize that time. Uh, but being very so purposeful, what I find is that people think they're busy. Uh, and then if you really, if you really write down all the tasks that you're doing, uh, I mean, just really think about yeah. what are the top priority tasks that you're doing and what can you outsource? 
So I've had to get very good at outsourcing. I've had a, a full team of virtual assistants for a number of years now doing lots of things for me. Uh, you know, we have four or five full-time people in the Philippines, you know, amongst yeah. numerous full-time people in the States. Um, and so make that list of things that you're doing on a day-to-day basis and then prioritize them. What's the highest income tasks that you need to be doing? And then think about what do you have to really do? And then question yourself again, do you really have to be the one doing that? Hmm. You know, or could you build a process so somebody else on your team could do that for you? And guess what? They can probably do it better most yeah. of the time, you know? So build that team. That's what I had to do from the beginning is build that team. Um, and so I could ensure things are getting done at a much higher scale much uh, just being more productive, right? And better quality uh, and knowing that I couldn't get it all done myself. Delegation, empowering other people, trusting them, letting go of control and saying no a thousand times. (laughs) Because I I think at the end of the day, it goes back to self-discipline, the ability to trust someone with someone because we always want to control things. If we're entrepreneurs, we built this ourselves. Oh no, what if they mess it up? Yeah, but if I want to scale, I have to trust people and like you said, they can't. There are people who can do a much better job than I can at 99% of the tasks I used to do. So totally yeah. with you on that. That's awesome. Well, Whitney, thank you so much. It was I really enjoyed talking with you. Um, I, I, you said you were a police officer in Kentucky for a while. I, I was. I, I got hired as soon as I came home from overseas. I, I became a police officer with Kentucky State. I remember you. You gave me a ticket when I was driving through there one time. <laughs> I'm joking. <laughs> <laughs> Just totally joking. Hey, thank you so much, Whitney, for being on the show. Um, I would love to have you back on again in the future um, with more questions. And everyone, you guys have an awesome day. Again, lifebridgecapital.com. Or one more time, your phone number? 540-585-4338. It's been a pleasure, Seth. All right. Take care, man. Thank you. Thank you.